All right, so if you were around last week, you know this, that we spent time last Sunday in Jesus's hometown synagogue of Nazareth, where we uh, saw Jesus read aloud from the scroll of Isaiah and proceeded to preach the shortest sermon recorded in all of scripture, declaring himself to be the messianic fulfillment of Isaiah's writing, one of the Old Testament prophets, the, the Lord's anointed having come in Jesus Christ to proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and those oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, the gear of the Lord's favor, the truest of jubilees, to which most of the crowd, you may recall, responded in unbelief, blinded by their own self-sufficiency and pride, refusing to come to the end of themselves like the widow of Zarephath, refusing to do the humiliating thing like Naaman the leper, choosing rather to, to drive Jesus out of their lives, to cast him out. One of the many fulfillments of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. Or as John says in his gospel account, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Which Jesus responds, we'll see it this morning, by shaking off the dust from his feet and moving on to the seaside city of Capernaum, a place where Jesus is able to perform a number of miracles as the people respond to him more favorably than those in his hometown of Nazareth did. So that we see something, this is crazy to think, something of the fulfillment of the promise of the Isaiah scroll that Jesus unfolded, put on glorious display in this morning's very passage. As Jesus enters this small fishing community filled with beggars desperate for bread. If you pick up the story in verse 31, Luke tells us, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was preaching or teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. All right, let me just stop there for a second because if you were around in the early part of chapter four, you may recall that Jesus was offered glory and authority in his wilderness temptation with the devil, the father of lies establishing this call to worship, inviting Jesus to break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me to which Jesus responded appropriately in fidelity to the Father, right? Unwavering commitment to the Father's plan of redemption. Here we see, ironically, for the first time in Luke's gospel account, that Jesus is described as possessing authority. What do you know? And it's not a demonic authority, having come in the compromising of Jesus's convictions, but rather a divine authority as the very son of God that Luke is trying to make clear to us in terms of the identity of Jesus Christ. In this case, it's the authority of his teaching. That Jesus didn't simply quote the, the rabbis and teachers who came before him like many in his day did, but rather he spoke with his own authority, the very incarnation of truth, proclaiming the truth in power. That's what's on the scene here. Leaving those in the city of Capernaum astonished that Greek word literally meaning to strike with panic or shock. There are many who believe that Jesus was nothing more than a, a good moral teacher, a philosopher, a prophet, providing the world with a timeless collection of fortune cookie statements. If that's who Jesus is, then you can just hang on to the red letter words you like and you can toss the others to the wayside. And there have been movements that have made it their aim to, to do that very thing. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, whatever he says and everything he says rings forth with the resounding authority of the divine. 
The king himself, having come to rescue a people for himself who would come under his rule, his reign, the banner of his authority, trusting that his kingdom is a better kingdom because Jesus is a better king. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, you make no mistake about it, Jesus is gonna say some really hard things in Luke's gospel account, things that get deep below the surface of our lives to the condition of our hearts. He's gonna expose our sinful intentions and motivations along the way, our selfish ambitions and deeply rooted idols, calling us to a radical turn in direction from the kingdom of this world to, as we'll see next week, to leave our nets and follow him. Jesus's words are incredibly jarring at times. If they're not, we're not seeing what's there. They should be jarring. The question is not, will we be shaken by many of the things that Jesus says along the way? The question is, will we trust him? Will we come under the banner of his lordship, the lordship of his authoritative word? It's the same question that our first parents faced in the garden, as we've seen already in this series, the same question that Israel faced in the wilderness, the same question that Jesus himself faced in his battle with the devil in the midst of his own temptation experience. Here Jesus speaks in the city of Capernaum with the resounding authority of the divine. And Luke tells us in verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right? Don't miss what's happening in this moment. This is bizarre. Right? A demon has possessed a man and taken him to church, reminding us that religious gatherings are not off limits to the work of the enemy. Right in the middle of a church service, so to speak, a demon interrupts with what many scholars believe to be a mix of both mockery and crippling fear. Notice here that, that a demon makes a confession regarding the person of Jesus Christ that those in his own hometown of Nazareth refused to make. A demon makes a confession about the person of Jesus Christ that religious people failed to make. There's something there in the context of the American South. At the same time, notice that a right understanding and confession of who Jesus is, it doesn't mean that a person loves and worships Jesus. Even the demons know that Jesus is more than a, a pithy philosopher, a good moral teacher. Even the demons believe James 19 and they shudder, they tremble. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the one having come to fulfill the promise to crush our boss's head and destroy us that good might show itself triumphant over evil in the end. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of Christus victor, Jesus our victory over the powers of evil. 1 John 3, 8 says it this way, the reason the Son of God appeared among many reasons was to destroy the works of the devil. There are many who consider the idea of demonic possession to be primitive thinking, an uncivilized way of explaining things in the modern day Western world. Those in first century Galilee would politely disagree. 
demonic activity and possession all the more intensified in that day as the full fury of hell was unleashed on the incarnate son of God. You have a unique moment in redemptive history here for sure. We've already seen Jesus show himself triumphant over the devil in the devil's efforts to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Now the question is, what about the devil's minion army? And I think we know if you can overcome the commander in chief, you can probably overcome his ranks. And Luke tells us just that, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked the demon saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done the man no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding regions. No kidding. You think that wouldn't make the paper in a small town like that? I mean, picture this. The same authoritative word that spoke the universe into existence, here commanding evil to silence itself and step aside. And just like the light that came into being in the story of creation, evil says, you got it. What else could I possibly do? There's a philosophical worldview known as dualism that says that good and evil are equally powerful and that we have no assurance of which of the two will emerge victorious in the end. To which Jesus says, dream on as he invites us to behold the authority and power of God over the forces of evil. King of kings, Lord of lords on the scene. His dominion, not only over evil, but sickness as well, as Luke goes on to say in verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon, that is Peter's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. We don't often times, many of us think of Jesus's disciples as being married, and yet Simon Peter apparently had married a hometown girl. Luke talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, chapter five, or excuse me, Paul does. In this case, Peter's mother-in-law, Luke tells us, had fallen ill with a dangerous fever, which in Jesus's day was oftentimes life-threatening, so that the family in this posture of utter desperation, this Uh, widow of Zarephath desperation, this name in the leper, once he got to the other side of his pride desperation, appeals to Jesus on behalf of the feverish woman's behalf. And, And Jesus, with the same authority with which he rebuked the demon, rebukes the woman's fever. And that 103.2 or whatever the number was on the thermometer said, you got it, and left the woman just like the demon in the middle of a Sabbath day sermon, showing us that Jesus not only has the power and authority over the spiritual realm, but the physical realm too, which should come as absolutely no surprise to us who believe Jesus Christ to truly be the son of God. The healing in this case, almost laughable, so comprehensive and complete that the woman immediately gets up, puts on a stew or something and begins to serve Jesus and her family. It's this beautiful picture of of what the gospel compels in the hearts and lives of those who have experienced true healing in Jesus Christ. Joyful service in the advancement of 
Jesus' purposes in the church and the world. I've said it before, say it again. It's a half gospel that looks to Jesus for the healing touch of a savior without rising up in gladness to serve him as king. And here you get both in this beautiful picture. Luke goes on to say in verse 40, now when the sun was setting, the end of the Sabbath officially, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Word spreads as you can imagine and people start showing up at Peter's mother-in-law's door at sundown in search of healing from their various sicknesses and diseases. What do you imagine showed up that day? Fevers, blindness, broken bones, cancerous tumors, respiratory issues, heart diseases, many of the things that have made our lives, our worlds, our families sad along the way. And we're told that not a single man, woman, or child was turned away on a night in which God gave the world a taste of the heavenly age to come. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day? You just picture those once bound by lameness, leaping like deer throughout this small community. Those once bound by mutinous, praising Jesus with their newfound voices, having received the healing touch of the Savior. Notice that detail. Laying on of hands, it's not something you'll find in the Old Testament. It wasn't common practice among the Jewish people. In fact, it, it was not only customary to keep the unclean at a distance, but to send them outside the camp until they proved themselves to be clean again. Luke is showing us something of Jesus's tender mercy and compassion in doing what many of us would never do. I mean, surely Jesus could have healed the crowds of people that night without touching them, right? We've seen him do it twice already in this morning's passage. Speaking with the same divine authority with which he spoke to the demon, could have done that speaking with the same divine authority with which he spoke to a fever, could have done that. And yet, Jesus stretches out his hand and touches the sick, the natural instinct of a loving savior. In the words of one commentator, every single person that evening felt the touch of the master's hand. The one who speaks with the resounding authority of the divine, he's the one who touches the untouchable by his grace. That's the Jesus of Luke's gospel account. As Jonathan Edwards once said, in Jesus, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, infinite majesty and infinite meekness. In the case of this morning's passage, astonishing authority and tender mercy colliding in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke goes on to say, and demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Not only are men, women, and children healed of their diseases, but several that night experienced freedom from the bondage of evil. Demons in mass declaring Jesus to be the son of God as they're forced to flee their hosts in submission to the authority of his word. To which Jesus responds, perhaps strangely, to some by silencing them. Why would he do that? Scholars are at odds about that. 
Some believe that he knew that there was a danger in Israel as it pertained to the nationalistic messianic expectations of many in the crowd, wanting to crown him in ways that he didn't want to be crowned. Although that doesn't necessarily seem to line up super well with his message and ministry at this point in Luke's gospel account, as he has no problem entering synagogue after synagogue, declaring himself to be the fulfillment of the Isaiah scroll, the Lord's anointed having come. More likely is that Luke understands that people must come to see Jesus for who he truly is, not on the basis of the testimony of demons, but rather on the basis of looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke writes that the reader might have certainty regarding the son of man who came to seek and save the lost, a certainty of faith that the reader must profess for himself or herself So I think it's appropriate to present the question this morning, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you looked at his person and his work? Do you have a sure knowledge of him and the salvation and lordship that comes by grace through faith in him? Luke closes out this morning, verse 42 saying, and when it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus attempts to carve out some alone time with the Father, a reminder of our own need for solitude in the presence of God. If Jesus saw sensibility in that, Probably good for us too. And yet we're told he, he struggles to do so as the seaside crowd quickly seeks him out and tries their best to keep him from leaving town to which Jesus responds, hey, my, my mission is so much bigger than that. You, you see it in both the original and the sequel, right? We started with the sequel first in the book of Acts where you see the gospel rippling out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The same thing is happening in Luke's gospel account from the beginning to the end. The gospel must go forth starting in Jesus's very hometown and rippling out so that Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns too. This has to go forth. That's the purpose I was sent for. Coming back to the Sermon on the Mount series, that language of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that's the message that Jesus made central to his ministry. His preaching and teaching point to the kingdom. His parables and miracles point to the kingdom. That if we think of Jesus apart from the kingdom, we're missing something of who Jesus is and what he's about. Remember, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, it's not just the anointing ceremony of heaven's priest, but the coronation ceremony of heaven's king. So that Jesus' entrance into the slums of human history to use that kingship imagery is the story of God taking back his world from us, calling us to come under his good reign, his glorious reign. Follow me, says the king. A radical turn in direction from everything you've ever known. A kingdom, the Bible shows us, inaugurated in Jesus' first coming, as we see his rule and reign over sickness and evil, 
both of which are forced to bow before heaven's king in this morning's passage. A kingdom ongoing as it moves from inauguration toward its consummation in the second coming of the king to set all things right. So that as for us, we live in the the in-between, the time, as scholars would say, of the already and the not yet. And what that means is that sometimes sickness will be met with healing as we expectantly pray for the, the Lord Jesus to give us glimpses of the heavenly age to come the way he did that night in the city of Capernaum. And sometimes sickness won't be met with healing in the outworking of God's infinite wisdom. And we shouldn't question God's love for us. We shouldn't question his purposes when he chooses not to heal. His ways are higher than our ways. To come back to to some of that Ecclesiastes imagery, if you were around for that series, God sees both sides of the redemptive tapestry, not just the side with all the knots. He sovereignly ordained, fascinatingly, both our desire to understand and our limited understanding, our finiteness that we might bow before him in trust and dependence as the helpless creatures that you and I are. Believing that he's working all things together for our good, Romans 8. Believing that he's squeezing every last drop out of every last circumstance for our good and for his glory. Living in the in-between also means that we should take very seriously the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves as we await the final destruction of the forces of evil. So when we have passages like Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a war Or as Peter himself goes on to say, and and keep in mind, as you look at this verse, this is the man who not only saw a fever rebuked out of his own mother-in-law, but proceeded to watch demons cast out left and right in his own city. This is a man who knows that God doesn't always work that way, which is why he says, 1 Peter 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded, Peter says, knowing that the devil and his minion army, they're on an unrelenting mission to derail the advancement of the gospel and the forward march of the church. And at the same time, and this is where the saints should get real happy, Jesus Christ has already won as have we who are united to him by faith. The the, the main point of this morning's passage is not that we expect a miracle, it's that we see Jesus for who he truly is and we bow before him in worship. And here's what the Bible says about Jesus in the wake of his first coming. Colossians 2.15, he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame like the demons in this morning's passage, by triumphing over them in Christ. 
Or how about Hebrews 2, 14? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus himself declared, Matthew 28, 18, all authority, not some authority, all authority, where? In heaven and not earth, no. In earth and not heaven, no. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, sickness will not have the final word. Death will not have the final word. Evil will not have the final word. Jesus will someday return and with an authoritative word, just like that which we see in this morning's passage, it'll all be over. Just like that. No more sickness and sorrow, no more pain and death, no more Satan and demons, no more sin and evil. All those things that make this world sad, wiped away forever, gone like a fever in the blink of an eye. Because that's the mighty power of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't get you excited, you might love this world as it is a little too much. The appropriate response to the second coming of Christ is very simply, amen, come Lord Jesus, let it be so. Give us a taste of that evening in the city of Capernaum forever. And as we longingly wait for that day, God graciously invites us to walk in the victory that's already ours in Christ. We're more than conquerors. The victory belongs to the church. The death blow has been delivered to the serpent's head. He's bleeding out. The gates of hell don't stand a chance. And, and, and let me emphasize that because I think there's a lot of belief within the, the, the realm of Christendom, so to speak, that feels like the church is losing right now. That's very worried about the church and how she's gonna turn out on the other side of all that's going on in the world right now. Can I tell you who's never broken a sweat in all of this? Jesus Christ. He's not worried. He knows the remnant theology that's spiraled over and over again throughout redemptive history. Nothing new under the sun. Martin Luther, we sing these words all the time. A mighty fortress is our God, one of my favorite hymns. It says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Okay, now here's the part that we don't always sing as a church and particularly the last line, I want you to pay attention here because this is this morning's passage in a song. He goes on to say, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word like the rebuke of a fever shall fail him. We have the word that shall fell the enemy on our side. The authoritative word of heaven's king, Jesus Christ. And so we fight, committing ourselves to, to be the kingdom outpost that Jesus has established us to be in this time of the in-between, the already and the not yet, declaring your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do it now bending our knee in glad submission to heaven's king as we await his return. 
declaring I'm not gonna be outdone by demons and fevers. I'll bend to you too, Jesus. And praying for many more to come under the reign of his kingship, knowing that he and he alone has the power to bring healing and liberty to use that Isaiah scroll language where there is now sickness and captivity. Everything else is a second rate hope. And the beauty of this morning's passage is all it takes is a word from Jesus. Heaven's priest king. A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress indeed. And so I invite you this morning to bow to heaven's king with a song to not be outshouted by the forces of evil as to who this son of God is, but to sing it together as his bride this morning, to receive of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to receive of those elements, just coming back to a couple of those verses that I read just a moment ago, just invite you to pause. Welcome to take those elements of bread and cup at any time between now and the end of our service over these last couple of songs. I just invite you to pause for a second and consider Hebrews 2.14, through his death, through his broken body, through his shed blood, the destruction of the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, was inaugurated. And so much more through the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ.